Hello and welcome again to Faculty Focus, a special podcast series from Harvard Divinity School where we speak with HDS professors about their courses and research interests. I'm Jonathan Beasley. Today's guest is Charles Hallisey, who is the Yehan Numada Senior Lecturer on Buddhist Literatures here at Harvard Divinity School. Professor Hallisey's research centers on Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia, Pali language and literature, Buddhist ethics, and literature in Buddhist culture. Thanks for listening and joining us today. Let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. Professor Hallisey, I'd like to start by asking you, what was your experience like as an MDiv student here in the, the mid to late 1970s? And also, in, in your opinion, how has the school changed since then? And how has specifically Buddhist studies evolved over that time here at the school? The way I came to Harvard Divinity School to do an MDiv was really almost indirectly, and it wasn't exactly my idea. I was an undergraduate. I had begun the study of Buddhism and Asian religions, and I had the idea I wanted to continue doing it in graduate school. I spoke to one of my teachers, and he listened carefully, and then at the end he said, it sounds all good, but there's one big problem. And I asked, what is that? And he said, you don't know anything about the religions in the country that you grew up in. And I said, well, that's true. What can I do about that? So he said, why don't you go to a divinity school for one year and learn something? And if you don't have any money, which I didn't, he said, apply for a degree. They'll give you financial aid. So that's what I did. I came for a year, and I th- realized, oh, there's a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty happy about what I was learning. Mm-hmm. And so I had applied to be in the degree, and I just stayed to get the degree. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in a curious way, I began some things in Buddhist studies, but that wasn't my focus. Mm. I began the study of Sanskrit, but I, I don't know if I took a single course in Buddhism while mm. I was here. I took a lot of courses on Christianity, courses on Hindu, Hinduism, things on Judaism as well, as also a whole range of things that at that time were called applied theology or practical theology. Uh, and one of the great gifts of doing the degree, the MDiv degree, was doing the field education, mm. which I'm very self-conscious that I feel that it transformed me as a kind of a student of religion professionally and particularly a student of Buddhism. And so far as I think that what I learned, you know, doing, say, hospital chaplaincy, is a, a lot of the things that my c- colleagues in Buddhist studies say, oh, this is what Buddhism does, that it, you know, it has these ways of explaining bad things happening to you by karma or whatever. You know, I realize that no one wants to hear that when they're you know, ill, when they're mm-hmm. terminally ill. Mm-hmm. And what I realize is that, oh, that what you know, Buddhism, like other you know, religions, do when they work well is that they help you to live well when there's no good explanations. Mm. And so that, I think, you know, changed how I began to study Buddhism, what I listened to when I was among Buddhists, uh, that I just saw that confirmed over and over, that they were concerned about how to live well when you know, things are going wrong mm-hmm. and not like having you know, airtight, good explanations for why bad things happen. One of the things in terms of how Harvard Divinity School is different than uh, then than now, there's a lot of things that I'm really quite self-conscious about, how it's different. 
you know, one that is a somewhat intangible, but it, it, I'd say a really profound difference is that you know, kind of student employment did a lot of the, the maintaining of the everyday life of the school. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is a kind of a difference was that uh, it wasn't really a multi-religious place mm-hmm. at that point. Right. Um, it was very diverse, but it was diverse in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had a lot of people that nowadays would be called nuns, you know, like having no religious identity, and that was pretty routine and didn't bother anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that in a kind of ironic way that I think was very good for me is that... You know, Basically, I was ignored as a student, <laughs> and it suited me very well because no one was uh, demanding of me, explain yourself, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. explain what you were doing, because I don't think that I would have been able to articulate any kind of coherent answer to explaining you know, what I was doing, mm-hmm. but looking back, I'd say, I'm really happy I did what I did, yeah. you know, so... So when was it that you decided to become a professor, a, a scholar? When, when did that moment hit you as, this is something that I want to do? <laughs> no, I'm not sure it's hit me yet. Uh, <laughs> okay, it still uh, hasn't hit you yet. Uh, so, it, you know, it was always an option. But say when I finished my MDiv degree here, I had, you, know, you finish a degree, you have life choices in front of you, mm-hmm. different paths that you could take. And, you know, bef- choices that I felt that I had that were kind of reasonable were, uh, you know, one that I could go to graduate school and continue doing things in Buddhist studies, which is actually what I did. Mm-hmm. But the other was that, you know, I thought there was a reasonable chance I could get hired to be a high school teacher in a Quaker school on the, in the occupied territories of mm-hmm. Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. And, you know, after I, you know, finally went to Israel, you know, decades, really, you know, f- almost 40 years later, maybe, uh, you know, and saw the realities of life, I thought, oh, your life would have been really, really different uh, yeah. if you had chosen that kind of route. Right. So, uh, you know, I would say at every step of the way, you know, becoming a, a professor, there was something of like another choice that was always possible, hmm. you know, so... Uh, but some of it's not really your own, you know, under your own controls. Someone else has to say, hey, we want you. you know, so. That's true. And, uh, and, you know, when I look back, I think, oh, really quite fortunate that uh, my first uh, teaching job in a university was in a theology department of a Catholic university. Mm-hmm. You say that my experience at Harvard Divinity School made that po- possible. Uh, and that... Uh, what my colleagues would say, you know, that their phrase was, you don't have a chip in your shoulder about mm. Christianity. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it did, you know, being a student of the Buddhist world of Asian religions, you know, there was, there was nothing in me that kind of feels uncomfortable about, mm. you know, what Christianity might represent. Whereas, you know, for lots of people, you know, there's like, uh, the reason they're studying Buddhism is, you know, some other, you know, uh, issues they have with theistic religions. Yeah. One of the things just uh, um, 
with your teaching in particular at HDS. As far as I can tell, you teach upwards of six different classes, and I don't think I've seen a faculty member that has six classes listed in, in their course catalog. Why do you, why do you choose to, to teach so many courses? What someone just said about me is that I'm easily distracted. Okay, okay. <laughs> and, you know, someone brings up something, I say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and, you know, part of teaching for me is exploring things with other people mm -hmm. and, you know, expanding what I'm able to see by what people sharing with me with what they're able to see. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things that's happened to me now teaching in Harvard Divinity School is, you know, I teach a lot of courses on know, how to read Buddhist scriptures. Mm. That's part of the scriptural interpretation requirement for the MDiv. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I kind of have this sense of myself that uh, you know, the good things that happened to me is because of someone else's suggestion, you know. That. Mm. So what happened was that when I first came to teach at Harvard Divinity School, uh, the student was an advisee was complaining that there were no courses on Buddhism that would meet the scriptural interpretation requirements, mm. uh, and I just thought, well, I can fix that. Mm. And so I started, you know, teaching one, and then I found that oh, it was pretty interesting, and then I, you know, added another, and I've taught like six different courses just on uh, like engaging Buddhist scriptures. Mm. So. And, and I'm the only one who's done all six. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, and uh, I probably could keep on adding, you know, I'll keep on adding other ones to it. So. Is there a common element or a through line with these courses that you're teaching? Is there just, is there a common thread there? You know, the basic uh, kind of problematic intellectually, you know, is all of the courses begin with something from uh, Wilfred Campbell Smith, who mm. was on the faculty here when I was a student. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, his thinking is kind of in the, deep in the woodwork of a lot of stuff, uh, uh, study of religion at Harvard. And mm. So he got interested in you know, on, you know, the interpretation of scripture at a certain point of his life, wrote a lot about it. All of the stuff that he wrote begins with a, what I call a trail marker that uh, we scholars don't understand what a scripture is. Mm. And so that is uh, uh, you know, the, the basic thing that is uh, orienting all of these, this kind of problem of just what is this human phenomenon mm. in which uh, relatively few texts become, come to mean so much to so many people. Mm -hmm. And so deeply, mm -hmm. so that's you know, a phrase from Wilfred Smith. Of, you know, any concept of scripture that doesn't help us to understand how so few texts could mean so much to so many so deeply mm -hmm. is we know is inadequate. And so I'm very clear that there's a distinction for me between a authoritative text and a scriptural text. Uh, so what I say in the class is authoritative texts are tools of repression and scriptural texts are instruments of freedom. And, uh, wow. and so, you know, so you can take other courses about, you know, authoritative texts. Those are not hard to understand, uh, but understanding how, you know, someone finds themselves kind of you know, enlarged, made free from themselves hmm. by some kind of engagement with a text, you know, that I find really hard to understand. And, you know, and practically, you know, 
people, you know, the students in a class really get into it. They, you know, they kind of show me and say, wow, I didn't realize that. That, that. That's an important thing that's happening here. One other question I have for you, Professor Hallisey, is just about the students who are taking your, your courses. Who are these students who are enrolled in your classes, and what are they interested in? The, the scripture classes, you know, people of all sorts come. It was like a big surprise to me, a happy surprise, that when I first started teaching the courses on Buddhist scriptures, some Unitarian Universalists like, showed up in the class, and they <laughs> said, these are our scriptures too. And I thought... You know, that was wrong of me. I didn't anticipate that. Mm. You know, it, mm. What they're saying is true. And so you have people who are kind of in the MDiv program, and uh, uh, that, you know, they're kind of interested in, you know, how do I, you know, the, all the classes are about how, how do you teach someone else to be a more than competent reader of a text mm. that it can become a scripture. Mm. And so you have people who are interested in doing that on, you know, Jewish texts, uh, Christian mm-hmm. texts, uh, as well as people in Buddhist studies and mm-hmm. uh, people preparing themselves for Buddhist ministry. So, uh, you know, a lot of the people who show up are part of the Buddhist ministry initiative here at the Divinity School, too. So I'm just thinking about prospective students who might be listening to this, uh, perhaps in addition to new students as well. But what makes learning Buddhist studies at Harvard Divinity School and being engaged in that kind of work Exciting. Why, why is HDS an exciting place for Buddhist studies? Harvard University has like a pretty unique configuration of the study of Buddhism mm. in which Harvard Divinity School, what's happening at Harvard Divinity School plays a really central part in it. Mm. So you have a pretty high-powered program in study of religion and faculty of arts and sciences. Mm. And in that, it's you know, a very good representative of how to study the... Buddhist heritages from the perspective of religious studies. You also have a powerhouse of uh, area studies, um, particularly in East Asian area studies mm. uh, in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And that is a good representative of how to study the Buddhist world within the paradigms of perception that you know, focuses on you know, a place called Asia, on you know, area studies. At uh, uh, the Divinity School, you know, with the kind of aspirations of things being, you know, as a professional school, preparing people for kind of professions, caring professions of ministry, it's a different way of engaging the text, mm-hmm. engaging the, the heritages of the uh, Buddhist world. And so my own kind of image of it is that you know, in astronomy, you have these ideas of you know, twin stars that are held together mm. by the gravity that each one pulls something out of the other one. Mm. At Harvard, we have basically a triple star for the study of Buddhism mm. that has, you know, what area studies, East Asian studies is doing, what study religion is doing, are powerhouses in their own right, but they're locked together in mm. a certain way. And then the Div School is doing something that is also locked with these other um, programs, mm. but also pulling like things out of them uh, that otherwise might not be so like front and center. Mm. So I think th- you know it's not like anything at Harvard Divinity School on its own is part of this larger configuration in which Harvard Divinity School uh, I think ha- what we're doing here has changed what is being done 
in the study of religion and in area studies as well. Mm. And the study of Buddhism is all over the place at Harvard, art history, anthropology, you know, psychology, uh, government, you know. It's hard to find a place at Harvard where someone's not talking about Buddhism. And, uh, yeah. But the, that configuration of three different paradigms of perception, there's no place else in uh, 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 say North America, at least, that has anything that is remotely like it. You touched on your experience with field education earlier and how ultimately important that was for you. Does that also factor significantly with today's students, do you think? So you could say that you know the kinds of uh, let's say practical applied mm -hmm. uh, engagement with the heritages of the Buddhist world is front and center here at Harvard Divinity School. It also, I think, makes a, a different kind of interface between what's happening at a North American research university and institutions of higher, Buddhist institutions of higher education in Asia. Mm. And so that you have a different kind of uh, model of engagement with kind of what people are doing in Asia that, that uh, would be closer to you know, what is the norm in any kind of divinity school in North America for Christianity. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so it's just a question of how to relate like historical studies, sociological studies, to you know, various kinds of studies of you know, what uh, the past was like or the, the, the conditions that are happening in the present world and turning to questions about, but what about tomorrow? Mm. Uh, you know, what is it going to look like tomorrow? Mm. And so that, I think, uh, is a pretty like, you know, exciting place for like, thinking about what does it mean to study Buddhism in the 21st century. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your current book project, which is titled Flowers on the Tree of Poetry, The Moral Economy of Literature in Buddhist Sri Lanka. Could you tell me a little bit more about the project and, and how it's going? The project's been going on for a very long time, and it kind of has different parts that I focus on. Hmm. And uh, I'm hoping uh, on the next year to kind of accomplish another big chunk of things. Hmm. So, but the way to explain it uh, uh, you know, biographically mm. is that when I went to study in Sri Lanka and as part of my doctoral education, mm. the person who became you say, oh, my teacher uh, in Sri Lanka was a specialist on literature. Mm. I was interested in Buddhism. You know, but he was interested in poetry and high literature. I would say that you know, one of the many gifts that he gave me is that he taught me how to read in a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, his example, you know, what he shared with me, became transformative for me in my kind of professional research life. So just two examples of this. One is that the way that you know I studied with him is that we would sit across the table like you and I are now. Each of us would have the same book open in front of us, and he would read out loud, and I would like follow along. Mm -hmm. But what was really like very important to me was, you know, following how uh, you know like, when he took a breath, 
uh, I began to see like kind of units of words and ways that are not the same as you know, what a period might indicate or something. Mm. But even more important is that sometimes he would read something out loud and he, then he would stop and he would read it out loud again. And then he would just say under his breath to himself, very nice, very nice. Mm. And so they were, at first, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it, but then I began to be really kind of trying to see what was he seeing that was so beautiful. Mm. And so this is one of the things that uh, you know, I learned from him, is that to, to read a Buddhist text well is to see how beautiful it is mm-hmm. and what it allows you to see. Mm. The other kind of vivid memory I have of studying with him is that one day at the end of one of our sessions, he said to me, don't go home directly today. I want you to take this bus, go to this neighborhood in Colombo, get down, go down the street. There's a a temple there. In the yard is a tree that's in bloom. And so I want you to go and see that. Hmm. And he said, you know, Remember that a few weeks ago we were reading and it was a description of the color of the Buddhist skin and it said it was the same color as that flower. Mm-hmm. And so then he said, you need to see the flower. And one of the things that I learned in that is that the, what was inside of the text was kind of vibrating and resonating with the world outside. And that the world became you know, part of the text. Uh, mm. And the world became more beautiful because of what the texts were kind of connecting to, drawing our attention to. Mm. So part of this whole project on the moral economy of poetry would be kind of to, maybe to share some of the things that I learned from my teacher in Sri Lanka uh, about, you know, this is what uh, these texts are doing. And one of the things that really changed me as a student of Buddhist heritage is that what's front and center for people learning about Buddhism is what's called the first noble truth, that all this is suffering. But what's central to the Buddhist world that I know, uh, Buddhist heritage that I know, is that that's true, but this world is also beautiful. so part of the idea of the moral economy is, you know, what kind of emerges from certain conditions that you wouldn't say are necessarily uh, intended. But mm. it's, and one of those would be that uh, uh, this is a beautiful world. Mm. You know, if only you like, look, that you'll kind of be mesmerized by just how you know, you know, wonderful everyday things are. So that, that, that's the, the category of the moral economy. That, uh, that's something that is not intentionally or directly uh, aimed at, emerges from different kinds of practices that are there. And one of them is, it's just like st- stunning how beautiful this world is. And it doesn't take away from all the misery of the world that is there and the horrors of things that are but it's nice to be reminded. But you no, know, right next to all of the horrors is this other thing that is going on as well. Yeah. That's a nice note to end on. Thank you so much, Professor Charlie Halsey. Sure. Thank you.
My thanks to Professor Hallisey for giving us an inside look at his teaching and scholarship. This is the final episode of this academic year's special faculty focus series. We'll still be sharing lots of great audio content though, so please subscribe to Harvard Divinity School wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit our website, or follow us on social media. If you're interested in learning more about HDS, our faculty and the student experience. Until next time.